Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you as a congregation and we acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from above, that everything that we have comes from you, that we've received, uh, that we have nothing that we haven't received. And Lord, we also acknowledge your word that you have given to us. We pray that this morning and as we begin a new series that you would guide us and you would instruct us, that you would give us understanding, help us to see your Son, Jesus Christ, in everything that we read, in everything that we study. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified among us, that you would, Lord, be uh, our concern, our highest delight in everything that we do here at church. Lord, we commit everything to you, and we thank you for your abundant goodness towards us through Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we are embarking on a new sermon series in the book of Daniel. Normally, when we start a new series, uh, the first sermon of the series involves an introduction to the book, and then usually about half the sermon is introduction, and then the rest of the half of the first sermon we get into the exposition. But with a book like Daniel... Uh, we're going to take the whole sermon today to do introduction and probably next week some more introduction. Well, definitely next week some more introduction before we actually jump into the exposition. And so this morning I'd like to touch on two things. The first, why Daniel? Why the book of Daniel? The second, uh, we'll just touch on this morning, we'll touch on the crucial issue of authorship and date of the book of Daniel, but we'll take that up primarily next week. And I want to emphasize how crucial it is, uh, this issue of, of authorship and date. Unlike most books in the Bible, this really matters with the book of Daniel. It matters for all, but especially so with the book of Daniel. So first, why Daniel? Now I know that when I announced that we're going to be studying the book of Daniel as our next series, half said, oh yes, and half said, oh no. (laughs) And that pretty much illustrates the divide uh, in the Christian church about the book of Daniel and how controversial this book really is. Because on the one hand, you have people that say this, Daniel is about prophecy and eschatology, which is only speculative and impractical and useless. What will happen is going to happen. It's not like us studying it is going to change what's going to happen. So God knows what's going to happen. It's all going to pan out in the end. So we, we, would, better, we, we would do better with a book about Jesus and the gospel that unites us all and that encourages us all. Okay? That's the one way people think. We would be doing better with a book about Jesus and the gospel that unites us all and encourages us all. On the other hand, you have people that say, yes, Daniel, we can just put Jesus and the gospel on hold for a little while. I love speculating about prophecy and eschatology. Do you think Russia is about to invade America, paving the way for the new pope to obtain a nuke? 
<laughs> right? <laughs> Both of these are extremes that I hope to dispel. If you expect the kind of irresponsible, alarmist, pop culture, dogmatic speculativeness that is done by people like Harold Camping and Tim LaHaye, you'll be sorely disappointed. This is not what this series is going to be about at all. People like them give prophecy and eschatology a bad name. They're, they're sensationalists, if you will, and they do it because they know they can get attention, and they, can, they know that people uh, like to speculate about the future, and people are afraid about the future, and These men eclipse the thousands of others who study and write responsibly on the issue of prophecy and eschatology. I'd like to emphasize that. That there are thousands of people, there's innumerable amount of people who study and write responsibly and talk responsibly about prophecy and eschatology and they get eclipsed by these sensationalists. However, those who react to these sensationalists are also contributing to the whole problem. Because when you look at men like Harold Camping, and when you look at men like Tim LaHaye, who write these left-behind books that are just basically pop fiction culture sensations, and then you react to that and say, I'm done with prophecy and eschatology altogether, you're just contributing to the confusion and the problem when you do that. You're not seeing through that and saying, this is not what it's about. And so I'm not going to react to this. If you think that is what studying prophecy is about, you're wrong. And then, therefore, this this series is definitely necessary to help you see what it really should be about when we study prophecy. So you'll notice both of those extremes have the same idea of prophecy and they react differently. I hope to show you in this series that the study of prophecy is rational, level-headed, biblical, and immensely fortifying and encouraging. Another problem with both of the extremes, if you noticed, is that both thought that the book of Daniel, eschatology and prophecy, is not about the gospel and is not about Christ. Do you notice that? So on the one hand, people say, let's not go to these kind of books because we would be better studying something about Jesus and the gospel which will unite us and encourage us. The other group says, we can put Jesus on the gospel on hold for a little while. So both extremes fail to see that this is not, they, they fail to see that it's about the gospel, that it's about Christ, and this is actually something that can unite Christians. If you think, brothers and sisters, that prophecy and eschatology is not about Christ, you're wrong. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable to rebuke and to correct and and to instruct God's people in righteousness. True or false? All scripture is profitable to teach us about righteousness. Now, how do we have righteousness? Where does righteousness come from? From ourselves? Where does righteousness come from? From Christ Jesus. So if a person doesn't know that, then they haven't really been trained in righteousness at all, right? If a person doesn't know that righteousness does not come through my works and through my obedience 
but that it comes through Jesus Christ. If they don't know that, they've not been trained or instructed in righteousness. And Paul tells us that all Scripture is profitable to teach us in that. That includes books like the book of Daniel, books like the book of Revelation, uh, prophetic books. So if we're not seeing Christ in them, we aren't reading them rightly. Another passage, Paul says the same thing. In Romans 15, verse 4, he says, What was written beforehand was written for our sakes so that we, through the instruction of the Scriptures, might have hope. Romans 15, verse 4. So, where does hope come from? Where, where does, how do we get hope as Christians? Is it in ourselves? No. Is it in the government? No. <laughs> we don't get hope from that. We get hope from Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't learned that hope comes from Jesus Christ and that you have hope from him, you've not been instructed by the scriptures. But Paul said the scriptures, whatever was written before, was so that we might have hope through the scriptures, which includes prophecy. So if your mindset has been, nah, prophecy is not about Jesus and the gospel, you're wrong. Revelation 19 verse 10 says this amazing thing. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is what prophecy is all about, essentially, is what uh, the angel tells John in Revelation. A commentator, Adam Clark, says a beautiful thing about this verse. The spirit of prophecy is a testimony concerning Jesus, for he is the scope and design of the whole scripture. To him gave all the prophets witness. Remember, Jesus said that, right? To him gave all, or sorry, Paul said that about Jesus. To him give all the prophets witness. Clark goes on to say, take Jesus, his grace, spirit, and religion out of the Bible, and it has neither scope, design, object, nor end. Okay? If you take Jesus out, there is no point to anything in the scriptures whatsoever. Imagine. Think about it. If Jesus was out of the Bible, what would the book of Daniel be for? What would the book of Romans be for? What would the book of Leviticus be for? What would the book of Genesis be for? Psalms, Ecclesiastes, if Jesus was not in the Bible? Nothing. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter gives his witness as to what the point of the prophets is all about, including the nitty-gritty detailed stuff in the prophets. He says here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories of to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. So you need to get it out of your mind forever that prophecy, eschatology, 
books like Daniel and Revelation are not about the gospel, are not about salvation, are not about Jesus. It's just about sensationalism. It's not profitable to the church. It's not profitable for us to go into. We would be better doing it. You've got to get rid of all of that and hear what the Bible says about this. If prophecy and eschatology doesn't unify us, and often it doesn't, someone is missing Christ if it doesn't unify us. So here's one of the major reasons why we'll st- for studying Daniel to help us gain an integrated view of Scripture, not a lopsided view of Scripture. An integrated view where we're seeing Christ in all the Scripture. We don't just come to church on Sunday and do preaching out of the New Testament to see Christ. It's not just always staying in the New Testament or always staying in books that... Um, you know, speak maybe more explicitly about Jesus, but we want to see an integrated view of Scripture where it's all about God and His salvation through Jesus Christ. Is that a good goal, do you think, to see? An integrated view of Scripture? It's all about God? That Daniel's about God and His salvation through Jesus Christ as well? So to, to have an integrated view of Scripture, to see Jesus Christ, and to see also the profitableness of studying prophecy how it encourages us and unifies us in Christ. That's one reason. Here's four more reasons why we should, as Christians, study the book of Daniel. Secondly, Jesus explicitly commands us to understand the book of Daniel. True? Explicitly. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, when we were going through the book of Matthew, we touched on the Olivet Discourse, and in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, whoever reads Daniel, let him understand... Now, Daniel is part of the scriptures. Whoever reads Daniel should be us all. And Jesus is telling us, let this person who reads, or this group who reads, understand. And Jesus is essentially making some comment here about Daniel. He helps us to understand the book of Daniel. So we ought to take his advice and go to Daniel. Seems like a nice segue in from our study in Matthew. If you think people who are into prophecy are wacko, then Jesus is wacko. Because he's into prophecy, isn't he? Jesus wants us to understand Daniel. Daniel is obviously important to the New Testament. We see with Jesus, we'll see this as we go on. With the apostles, you can see the influence of Daniel in all of their writings. Scholars all agree. Look at the book of Revelation and how heavily it is related to the book of Daniel. Clearly, Daniel is an important book for Christians. That's very clear in the New Testament. And it's essential to understanding prophecy and eschatology. All scholars will agree with that. Third reason why we should study Daniel, learning about eschatology is important. Did you know that here's a very conservative figure but about one-fourth or a quarter of the Bible is directly prophetic. That is, one-fourth of the Bible is actually a prophecy telling you what's going to happen. A quarter of this book that we believe as Christians is by nature prophecy, and that's the direct stuff, okay? And that's a very conservative figure. I'm sure if we were to even look more closely at that and what... There are allusions to it or themes of books and things like that. We would see that the Bible is an intensely prophetic 
book. Isn't that, that's an amazing figure, isn't it? That's a quarter of the Bible to put on the shelf and ignore if you are disinterested in prophecy. For many, uh, the end times and prophetic things are vague, ambiguous, and pointless. But that is not the case in the Bible at all. It is not vague, it is not ambiguous, and it is not pointless. People have been turned off by sensationalists and false trumpets. People who say, I know what the Bible's saying, and they announce something and it never comes to pass, right? They've been turned off by these few people who have done that. But this is an unfortunate reaction. It'd be like, I'm never going to read the end of a book ever again. Because someone once lied to me about the end of the book, of end of a book I was reading. Okay, somebody once said before I was finished reading that book, this is what the end of the book was. It wasn't. I'm not reading it at the end of the book anymore. Okay, could you imagine taking, cutting out the end of a story altogether? You would lose a story, wouldn't you? Because a story. Remember, we talked about this before. A story involves a beginning, a middle, and an end. Could you imagine if you read the beginning, if you read the middle? Okay, I know where we came from. I know what happens in the middle. But the end, it it just all works out in the end. It just all pans out in the end. Can you imagine? What kind of a book would that be? You get about three quarters done, it says, and the rest just all pans out. You say, well, what happens to that guy? (laughs) Right? What happens to this person? What happens to that relationship? What am I supposed to do now? Imagine with the Bible, if we took the end of the story out, or if we just kind of said, ah, it just all works out in the end. What if we have a big part to play in the end? Obviously, God spoke these things for our benefit, so that we can know how should we live, and so that we would be encouraged and strengthened in those times. God is a master storyteller. A master storyteller. And the beginning is his, and the middle is his, and the end is his. And God has privileged us to know the end before it happens. What a blessing. And he's done it for a reason. If you say, we don't need that, you're basically saying, we are wiser than God is. I am wiser than God is. He gave it. I ignore it. Because I don't need it. Amazing. Knowing the end is not merely or at all for curiosity's sake, but it's practical. I can't emphasize this enough. It's for our encouragement. It's for our strengthening. It's for our fortifying. It's for our guidance. That is why God tells us the future. And any general would love to know that information in a battle. What the future is going to be, what the enemy is going to do, what the weather conditions are going to be. Any general would love that. Any person would love that, to know the future so you can direct your life and guide it in a fitting and helpful way. And so we're told to do this not just for curiosity, not just to speculate, but for our good. And so we need to stop reacting against sensationalists. If you're still not convinced, the worst thing that can happen in a series like this is you can learn. You can learn something about what people believe about these things and what the Bible teaches. Uh, Grow in your knowledge of Scripture. Here's a fourth reason why Daniel is an important book to study. Daniel affords us a wonderful example, not only of how to live our lives, but of God's care 
for his people. And that is very, very encouraging because not all the book of Daniel is prophecy. About half of it is court narrative. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, it's got some of the most amazing incidences of God's deliverance in it. Very, very encouraging for the people of God to see God at work in the affairs of man. And so it's instructive. Fifth reason to read the book of Daniel. And this is a major reason uh, for reading the book of Daniel and for this series is that the particular message of Daniel, the particular message of Daniel, is a balm for the anxious soul. And it is timely. It's always timely, right? But it is timely in our day. All scripture is about Christ, but each scripture has its own unique focus and emphasis. And the focus and the emphasis and the particular message of the book of Daniel clearly is, and you, any commentator will tell you this, any pastor preacher will tell you this, the particular focus and emphasis of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is a balm for the anxious soul. And it is timely for us today. Sovereignty simply means supreme power and authority. Basically, uh, what you say goes and what you want goes. A sovereign nation is in charge of its own affairs. What that nation says goes and no one else can interfere with that. That's what makes them sovereign. What they want goes. You can't interfere with that. A king who is sovereign has the ultimate authority and power to make his will happen. This is what the book of Daniel is focused on. One of the classic statements of the sovereignty of God is given by A.W. Pink. Here's what he says. What do we mean by the sovereignty of God? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, unto the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsel, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleases him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. True or false? If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you know how pertinent Pink's description of sovereignty is, right? Because that's the essential focus of the book of Daniel. And we'll see this all throughout the book of Daniel. Everything Pink said, God is the King of Kings. God is the Lord of Lords. His will and His purpose, no one can resist and say to Him, what are you doing? Thus I've entitled the series, The Sovereignty of God. 
And I believe that this is a timely balm for people in this earth. It's always timely, but especially for Christians, especially for all men, to know at this time that God is sovereign, that God is in control of everything, that all the craziness that goes on in this world and in our lives, in our country. God is the one who is at the wheel. And you can trust him in all those things. Very important. Now, Daniel is easily one of the most fascinating books of the Bible. It's fascinating because it's controversial. And it's controversial because it's fascinating. The fact that it's so controversial is is fascinating in and of itself, but there's a reason why it's so controversial. As far as scholarship goes, Daniel is a bloodbath. The book of Daniel, F.M. Unger says, seems designed as a battleground between faith and unbelief. Edward Pusey says this famous quote, The book of Daniel is especially fitted to be a battleground between faith and unbelief. It admits of no halfway measures. It is either divine or an imposture. It is either divine or it's a fraud. Those are your only two options when it comes to the book of Daniel. This is why it's so controversial. Why is this? Simply because Daniel is a book of prophecy. And it's this, is what make, this is what makes it controversial. Not because the prophecies are vague. Not because the prophecies are unclear and people debate about it and speculate. That's not why it's controversial. It's controversial because the prophecies in it are clear. I heard a quote by Tom, uh, Mark Twain. He said, It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bothers me. Right? And such is the case with Daniel. Daniel bothers people because it, the prophecies are clear. They're not vague. There are many miracles in the Bible that people easily dismiss. Right? Jesus walked on water. No, he didn't. No one was there to see it except his disciples. They just made up that story. Easy to dismiss. You have to do a lot more digging to kind of get to the bottom of that one. Or certain prophecies, perhaps, that you have to do a lot more digging to see how profound they are. But not Daniel. Because Daniel, as I said, is not unclear. It is specific, fulfilled prophecy that creates an unfading witness to the miraculous and to the power and sovereignty of of God. An unfading witness. A miracle that doesn't fade away in our memories. It's constantly there for anyone to see. You can constantly verify this and be amazed at the power of God. You personally can look and see. You weren't there when Jesus walked on water, but you can do your homework here and see, yep, wow, that is a miracle. In fact, this kind of prophecy is God's chosen apologetic. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, God himself chooses prophecy. If you think prophecy is wacko, then you have to think God is wacko too. Because he chooses prophecy in Isaiah 41 to prove himself to be God. He says in Isaiah 41, all these other gods that claim to be God, let's put the challenge to them. If you are God, 
Tell us the future so that we may know that you do something and speak and that you are God. God laughs at them and God shows us who he is and his power through prophecy. It's simply up to a person whether they're going to look or ignore it. That's it. In my experience with people who don't believe in Christ, one of the main reasons they don't believe in Christ is not because they've looked into the issues and they've concluded that the, uh, the arguments for Jesus and the reasons to believe in Jesus are not compelling, but it's because they haven't looked at all. In my experience with students on campus, at least, they haven't looked. God says, look and see. Let's reason together about this. But men choose to not look at the miracles that are staring them right now in the face. The early church, brothers and sisters, used prophecy probably more than we do today. Actually, most undoubtedly so. The early Christians wrote about and argued from the prophets. You can find this in the book of Acts. You can find this in the early Christian writings outside of the Bible. They used prophecy. They said, look, God foretold these things before they happened. Here it is. You can look and see the power of God and the truthfulness of Christ. Because it proves that there's a God. It proves that Jehovah is God. It proves that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm convinced that Christians need a rediscovery of the prophetic. Now, that's probably a controversial thing to say here in Utah, right? Christians need a rediscovery of the prophetic, and by that I do not mean an office. I don't mean we need a rediscovery of some prophet person that comes to lead our church. We need a rediscovery of the powerful sense that God has spoken, miraculously spoken, that God is there in control. His word is true. He has decreed the things that are, have, have come to pass and that will come to pass. This is what a prophetic people is. A people that know that God has spoken, that have that powerful sense that this is not the word of man. This is not just mere history. This is not just the ideas of man that have happened to touch upon something profound. This is God's very word who has spoken. Daniel didn't know the future. God knew the future and revealed it to him through the angel. This is God. And when we grasp this, when we become prophetic in that sense, then we will find ourselves invigorated and full of confidence and able to speak boldly into our world the word of God, not the word of man. This is the true and real word of God. I'd like to read you something Joyce Baldwin said. She's a commentator in the book of Daniel and was, a, uh, I think, the president of Bristol, uh, 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 Christian College in Bristol. What she says is so profound. It was part of Israel's heritage to know for certain that God's purpose could not be thwarted whatever the threat to her national life. Get, get that for a moment. This is all throughout the Bible. This is what made men like Moses, Mordecai, Ezra, the men that they were. You want to know why they were the men that they were? Is because they were prophetic men. It was part of Israel's heritage to know for certain that God's purpose could not be thwarted, whatever the threat to our national life. That's how Isaiah was able to look over the walls of Jerusalem and see the Assyrian army in great number out there completely 
capable of destroying them, destroying all the others, and you look at them and not have a fear. Yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not like we're in danger of being destroyed. Why? Because God has told me, God has shown us that's not going to happen. What a confidence you can have in the face of threats and dangers and trials to know the word of God and that God is in control and what he has said will happen. Amazing, isn't it? And it is the Christian's privilege, Baldwin goes on to say, to know that the gates of hell will not in the end prevail against God's church. To be deprived of this knowledge is to be deprived indeed, as the Marxist government well knows. Now you've got to understand, Baldwin wrote this in the 70s when uh, the Soviet Union was still powerful. And the Soviet Union, uh, for many years, persecuted Christians and wanted to snuff out all religion. They were militantly atheist. In fact, they even had organizations that were called militant atheists. And they wanted to stamp out all religion. Eventually, they found out that wasn't going to work too well. So they allowed churches to meet in extremely restricted ways, limited ways. And one of the limitations that they put upon the Christians was that you can preach about being a good person. It's fine. You can preach the ethical stuff about Jesus. You are not allowed to preach anything about the kingdom of God and eschatology. Interesting, huh? You're not allowed to preach anything about the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the prophecies of Daniel, about the nations of the world being in the control of God. That's off limits. But go ahead and preach, love your neighbor, fine. As the Marxist government well knows when it forbids the preaching of the last things in church sermons. There is indeed a more subtle reason for cutting out reference to books such as Daniel, for they undermine confidence in human governments generally and in those which depend on the proud tyrant in particular. Would that the church took took seriously as the communist the positive teaching of this book and so benefited from the incentive it gives to courageous, confident service. He's basically saying, I wish the Christian church felt as strongly about eschatology as the communists do. Isn't that interesting? Because the communists knew what that would produce in the hearts of Christians. We take it for granted. She goes on to say this, the whole church needs the kind of reassurance that a study of this book can bring. No wonder the church becomes defeatist if it sets on one side an important part of the Bible's understanding of history. See, prophecy is more than just God telling the future. It's showing the purpose of history, the unfolding of God's plan in the earth, that nothing is happening, happening willy-nilly. That it informs us about the pattern and purpose of history. She goes on to say, Moreover, its evangelism becomes ineffective without the message of the apocalyptic books. When the church lets part of its message go by default, people look elsewhere for a substitute. Interesting. If we forget talking about the future, if we forget talking about the coming kingdom, if we forget talking about the king, if we forget talking about his reign and his control over all things, people look elsewhere for a substitute. What's the future going to be like? Well, God doesn't say anything about it. Substitute. Who's going to look up, care, take care of us and look after us? Substitute. 
The church has only itself to blame if, in the minds of many, faith in an, in an impersonal dialectic has superseded faith in the mighty God as the controller of history. I think when we lose the prophetic word, we're basically left with just an impersonal rationalism about God. I believe in God because I see nature testifies of its existence. I believe in goodness because my conscience bears witness of it. Everything is just me sort of discerning. All of that is important. All of that is necessary. But prophecy helps us to see that God is not just something we discern, that God is the God who speaks into our world, who acts, who does things. That's what history and prophecy is all about. Knowing that God is not just something we've come up with in our minds. But we can look at this and point to it and say, God is in control, King of kings, putting kings down, raising kings up, guiding my personal life, and he's spoken into this world. And it's real. This is not the words of man. Secularism denies the supernatural. All the more reason, then, why the church needs to be counting on the certainties proclaimed in Daniel, namely that God is constantly overruling and judging in the affairs of men, putting down the mighty from their seats, overthrowing just regimes, unjust regimes, and effectively bringing in his kingdom, which is to embrace all nations. Full, confident proclamation of God's purpose for the whole of history needs to be heard without delay. I could not agree more with Dr. Baldwin. I don't know if you agree with that. Full, confident proclamation of God's purpose for the whole world needs to be heard without delay. Think about that. God himself calls us to and provides for this confidence. God calls us to be a prophetic church who has that sense of his word upon us. We can know and speak, thus saith the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what a powerful thing. Probably, actually, there's nothing more powerful than that. We can know and we can speak, thus saith the Lord. So here's a fact that everyone agrees on. Everyone uh, who studies Daniel whether they're atheists, secularists, or believers, Daniel accurately records events that took place spanning centuries. That's a fact that everyone agrees on. right? Daniel accurately records events that took place spanning centuries. So in the book of Daniel, you'll find a history laid out that spans centuries, and what he says will happen, in fact, it happened. Those are historical the accurate uh, recordings of those events. The real question here is, did Daniel write these things before they happened, or did he write them after they happened? That's the question. Is the book of Daniel prophecy, or is it history? It clearly records those events. If it's prophecy, it is the word of God. If it's prophecy, we have here a miracle of unfading witness. If it's history, it's just the word of man. If it's history, there's nothing special here that you can boldly say to another person, thus saith the Lord. It's just, no, Daniel just was recording history like Herodotus. But if it's prophecy, it is proof 
of the Word of God. Proof of inspiration, proof of Jehovah. On the other hand, if it's history, it is a fraud. Not merely history, but a fraud because the book of Daniel is written as if it's prophecy. This would be like some bogus person writing down something after the event and then trying to pass it off as prophecy. And believe me, Daniel fooled a whole lot of people. Even if he was doing it with a pious intention to encourage Israel, it is nonetheless a pious fraud. Going back to what Pusey said, it's either the Word of God, divine, or an imposture. Listen to what Josephus says about the book of Daniel. Josephus shares his conviction that Daniel is a prophet. He shares the conviction of people in his day. And poor Josephus, if, he, if he's wrong, he's basically believed a fraud. Josephus says this, It is fit to give an account of what this man did, which is most admirable to hear. For he was so happy as to have strange revelations made to him, and those as to one of the greatest of the prophets, insomuch that while he was alive, he had the esteem and applause both of the kings and of the multitude. And now he is dead. He retains a remembrance that will never fail. For the several books that he wrote and left behind him are still read by us till this time. And from them we believe that Daniel conversed with God, for he did not only prophesy of future events, as did the other prophets, but he also determined the time of their accomplishment. And while the prophets used to foretell misfortunes, and on that account were disagreeable both to the kings and the multitude, Daniel was to them a prophet of good things, and this to such a degree that by the agreeable nature of his predictions he procured the goodwill of all men. And by the accomplishment of them he procured the belief of their truth and the opinion of a sort of divinity for himself among the multitude. People actually thought Daniel was a god because he prophesied of these future things. Josephus, it is, it is uh, clear, believed Daniel prophesied. The people believed Daniel prophesied. Josephus goes on to say, Daniel reported our troubles in the past. He reported our troubles at this time with, with the Romans destroying our temple. This is all in the book of Daniel. He, Josephus says this is sufficient to refute all atheists. That's what Josephus goes on to say. Josephus is either speaking the truth, that this is the very word of God, or he's unfortunately duped by a fraud. What do men do with Daniel then? Because they must do something. If they do nothing, it's because they're ignorant. They haven't looked. Next week we'll tackle the all-important issue of the date and authorship of Daniel, but... Um, and we'll look next week at the arguments put forth for, on both sides. This is critical to, to the book of Daniel. But for now, I'd like to share the immediate sentiment by unbelievers before anything else is said by them. Before, before they put forth any arguments in, in addition to this, here is their immediate sentiment. And I, I'd like to quote to you here, a very distinguished professor at Union Theological Seminary and Yale Divinity School. He's taught at both of those. His name is W. Sibley Towner. And here's what he says in his commentary on the book of Daniel. 
Here's what he says. Quote, We need to assume that the vision as a whole is a prophecy after the fact. Why? Because human beings are unable accurately to predict future events centuries in advance. And to say that Daniel could do so, even on the basis of a symbolic revelation vouchsafed to him by God and interpreted by an angel, is to fly in the face of the certainties of human nature. So what we have here is in fact not a roadmap of the future laid down in the 6th century BC, but an interpretation of the events of the author's own time. How did he get from A to B? How did he come to that conclusion? This is a brilliant, distinguished professor, professor of New Testament or uh, Old Testament at both at Union Theological Seminary and Yale. And here's what he says. To think that Daniel is prophetic is to fly in the face of the certainties of human nature. The certainties of human nature, brothers and sisters, if we were stuck on that, if we were bound to the certainties of human nature, if all of life was just about the certainties of human nature, you and I would have no hope whatsoever. Right? Because here is a certainty of human nature. We are unrighteous in and of ourselves. This is a certainty. A certainty is you will be unfit for the judgment day. An insert, a certainty is that you will not keep the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And that is a certainty of human nature. And if you want to be bound to the certainties of human nature, there is no salvation for you whatsoever. Salvation is a supernatural act of God where God does what we cannot do. God makes us righteous through the power of the cross. God makes us righteous through his own power and not by any workings of our power whatsoever. And this is what makes Christianity Christianity. This is what makes what we believe the same that what Abraham believed, right? Because Abraham put his faith in what God had promised and that God was able to perform his promise against the certainties of human nature, right? It's absolutely certain Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a child. And against that certainty, he put his faith in the power of God. And so it is with us as Christians. We see the certainty that none of us can be righteous through our own works, according to human effort, according to human uh, obedience. We cannot give birth to righteousness. And we put our faith in the promise and the power of God who can do what humans cannot do. This is what the power of the cross is all about. We're on the cross. Jesus died, taking away our sins, and by the power of his blood, he cleanses us in a way that we could never be cleansed. Failure to believe in the supernatural is failure to believe in salvation through Jesus Christ. Failure to believe in prophecy goes hand in hand with failure to believe in salvation through Christ. Failure to believe in in creation goes hand in hand with failure to believe in salvation through Jesus Christ. The difference between true biblical religion and all false religions is this very issue of faith in the power of God 
and unbelief. That's it. Either you're bound to human certainties or you put your faith in the God who can do what is impossible with man. What's it going to be? Man's power or God's power? Brothers and sisters, I am so glad there is a God in heaven who rules and who has power. Power to speak prophecy. Power to create the universe out of nothing. Power to save a sinner like me and make me righteous before his throne. That's Christianity. Are you thankful for the power of God? Are you thankful that Towner is wrong? May God encourage us and fortify us in his word through this study of Daniel. May God make us a prophetic church with that sense of his word. May we have the certainty in his power to speak and to save so that we may speak his word boldly with great joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're not bound to the certainties of human nature. Thank you that we can read a book like Daniel and we can see your miraculous word and put our faith in the living God and your power to save. Lord, give us confidence. Expand our vision. Teach us through your word of who you are. We want to see you in your fullness, Lord. Thank you for saving us and speaking to us the word of life. We glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.